If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 12th chapter, the Gospel of John, as we continue our study through the Word. Now, you'll remember last time that we watched as Jesus came and ministered to Lazarus. You will remember the circumstances in which Jesus had departed from Jerusalem. You remember that the religious leaders had taken up stones and were going to stone him. And, and Jesus withdraws back to the Jordan River. You'll remember that Mary and Martha send a messenger to him that Lazarus is sick. And you'll remember that Jesus says the sickness isn't unto death. And, and so he stays two more days and then he makes the journey to Bethany. When he arrives, Lazarus has been in the grave now for four days. And you'll remember the confusion and the hurt in both Mary and Martha as they have been grieving and mourning over the loss of their brother. And yet Jesus had said that this sickness is not unto death. And you'll remember that as Jesus comes to Bethany, Martha comes out to Jesus and says, if, if, you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, that he will grant you. And, and Jesus told her that she would see her brother again. And she says, I know that I will see him in the general resurrection. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in me, you will live and never die. And he asked, do you believe this? And she affirms, I believe that you are the Messiah, that you are the Son of God. And, and Martha then goes and it says secretly gets her sister, goes back into the house and tells her that the teacher is outside. He's calling for you. And, and Mary comes now to Jesus. And you remember that she says the same thing. No doubt they had been discussing this back and forth. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But that's as many words as she can get out. She falls at his feet and is just uh, weeping. And, and Jesus sees her pain and those that had followed after her weeping also. And, and you remember that he groans in his spirit. And, and then ultimately now he weeps. And we see Jesus weeping. We see the compassionate heart of our Lord and Savior. He feels uh, our pain. The pain that he was feeling is the suffering. All of the tears that we have cried have all been the result of sin. Death is ultimately a result of sin and sorrows and hurts and mistreatments and angry words and all the pain that we suffer is a result of sin. And he sees Mary weeping and he sees the sorrow and, and he weeps. And you'll remember he goes to the tomb now and he asks for the stone to be removed. And you remember how Martha objects. It's been four days. There will be a stench. The body has now entered into the state of corruption. And Jesus once again said to her, did I not say to you, if you would but believe, you would see the the glory of God. And then Jesus directs his voice to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And you remember that Lazarus then stumbles uh, out of that cave, out of that tomb, and, and Jesus uh, issues the command to uh, help loose him and let him go. 
John records for us the response to this incredible miracle was that many believed uh, then that Jesus is the Messiah. The question throughout Jesus' public ministry is, who is Jesus? Is Jesus just this wonderful moral teacher? Is Jesus a miracle worker? Is Jesus a prophet? Or is Jesus the Messiah? And so there were a multitude of opinions about Jesus, but it says that many now believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But additionally, there were those, it says, that went and told the Pharisees uh, about what had happened. And, and the Pharisees now, they call the Sanhedrin into an emergency council. We have a big problem on our hands. This miracle is not deniable. And yet it is not explainable. And what are we going to do if this man continues to be left uh, alone? Everybody is going to go after him and we will lose our place and our nation. They were concerned with their power. They were concerned with the tenuous position that they had with Rome and that uh, if the nation goes after him, believing that he is going to lead them in a rebellion against Rome, then, uh, then the Romans will come and crush our nation. And you remember that Caiaphas, the high priest, and said, you know nothing at all is expedient for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. And, and he was prophesying. He, he declares now that Jesus must uh, be killed. And so we see that Jesus then withdraws uh, to Ephraim, departs from Bethany and it was now close to the Passover and and people were making preparation for the Passover and and the big question on everybody's lips was this is Jesus going to show up for the Passover there has been a uh, the word put out that if anybody knows where Jesus is that they are to let the religious uh, leaders know immediately and Jesus has always come to the feasts. Is he going to continue to come to the feasts? Or now that, uh, that he is wanted, is he going to stay away? Is he going to retreat to the shadows? Is he going to boldly show up? What is going to happen if he shows up? And, and this was what was on the hearts of, uh, of the entire city of Jerusalem. The word of Lazarus' resurrection spread like wildfire through Jerusalem. And it forced the, the conversation, and the conversation led to the question of the identity of Jesus. And this is where John picks it up here in this 12th chapter. Verse 1, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And so there's six days before the Passover, and and everybody is arriving. The pilgrims are arriving. They are spiritually cleansing themselves in the mikvahs and the baths. They are preparing their sacrifices to come to the temple and to pay their temple tax. And, and so everybody is reconnecting again. Families reconnect that are spread throughout Israel at the feasts would gather together. And, and so Jesus now makes his way from Ephraim from back to Jerusalem. We see that he heals the ten lepers. Luke 
gospel tells us that in the region between Samaria and, and Galilee, we see that he warns his disciples that on this trip that he is going to be crucified, but that he would rise again. He heals the beggars there in Jericho, blind Bartimaeus and the other. And he helps Zacchaeus, a tax collector in Jericho, learn about eternal life when he calls him out of a sycamore tree. But now from Jericho, Jesus sets his face like flint and and he ascends uh, now to Jerusalem and comes two miles outside of it to Bethany. And it says that there they made him a supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. We see that in Matthew and Mark's gospel, we discover that this meal was not at Lazarus's house. We find Martha serving. We always find Martha serving. She is always involved in the kitchen. Probably everybody wanted Martha serving. She was probably an amazing cook and had the gift of hospitality. But the Synoptic Gospels tell us that they were at the home of Simon the leper. That Simon the leper was hosting this meal. No doubt Simon was one of the lepers that had been healed, and he also lived in Bethany. You can imagine the emotion of that household and the gratefulness that was in their hearts when leprosy, an incurable disease, once it is discovered and is shown to the priests, and, and the priests would then go through their procedures and confirm that you did in fact have leprosy. You were separated away from your family. You were separated away from your loved ones, your business. You had to depart now to the leper call and live as an outcast until ultimately leprosy took your life. There was a moment in Simon's life when there was just a little blemish that was uh, on him, probably just looked like a skin irritation, but began to notice that as the days went by that it didn't go away. And, and the minute that you had a skin blemish, uh, there was the fear that this could be leprosy. And no doubt he had battled with that fear. Can't be leprosy. It's just got to just be a sore. It's just got to be a wound. It's just got to be an infection. And, and finally he gets to the point where he goes and shows himself to the priests and the priests isolate and and go through their procedures and they pronounce the dreaded sentence. You have leprosy. I'm sorry. There's nothing that we can do. And Simon would have departed from his household and left the life that he had to join the other lepers and to wait for death to take him until he comes across Jesus who heals his leprosy and gives him his life back. And so here is Simon back in his house uh, in Bethany hosting a meal for Jesus. And a guest at that meal is Lazarus. Can you imagine Lazarus now being back? 
I can imagine Lazarus saying, hey, that's awesome that you were healed of leprosy, but I was dead for four days. <laughs> what a meal. What a celebration. What an amazing display of the grace and the love of God. In verse 3, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. We see Martha serving, but we see Mary sacrificing. We see Mary bringing her dowry now, very expensive and spikenard, 300 denarius. A denarius is a day's wage, a year's salary here in this spikenard. And she breaks it open, pours it on his head, and also on his feet. And she wipes his feet with their hair, the incredible devotion and love. And we see in verse 4 that it says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put in, in it. We see that Judas's character is on display here. He was an embezzler. He was stealing the money. He was trusted with the ministry's purse. He was doing the disbursements and, and he was helping himself to the money that was coming into the ministry. And, and here he sees this large sum that could have come into the purse and, and he could have carved out that for himself. And and he sees this opportunity and he publicly criticizes Mary's generosity. And we see Jesus now defending her. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Let her alone. Jesus defends her. We see that her act of worship draws criticism. And, and instead of Mary defending herself, notice uh, how the Lord defends her. And Jesus then places a meaning on this. This was done in preparation of my burial. He says, the poor you will have with you always. I want you to know that there will always be others that are less fortunate than you to be able to reach back and to help. We will never stamp out world hunger. Any organization that seeks to eradicate world hunger is going against the very word that Jesus says. There will always be hungry. There will always be poor. There will always be an opportunity to minister to others. But here we see that Jesus is declaring, but don't put the ministry of others above your devotion to me. 
The social gospel loses sight of the relationship with Jesus Christ. And the centrality of the social gospel is that we will go and do good things uh, for other people, but it lacks uh, the devotion to Christ. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, uh, whom he had raised uh, from the dead. And, and so a great many came, not only the one who had been raised from the dead, but the one who had raised him from the dead are together. And, and people wanted to come and, to, and see these two. In verse 10, but the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death uh, also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Here we see the chief priests uh, now are plotting to put Lazarus to death uh, also. They had already purposed in their hearts that Jesus uh, needed to be done away with. But now what do they do with this witness of the power of Jesus? Well, they will kill him also. <laughs> And they will silence the witness of Jesus Christ. We see the opposition now of the government against the, the church. We see the, the persecution of Christianity, of Christ and those following after Christ all the way back even before the crucifixion itself. The tension between government and church goes long throughout and has been with us throughout all of Christianity. It is absolutely nothing new. Jesus is Lord or Caesar is Lord. And this goes back even before his triumphal entry in his final week. We see here that in verse uh, 12 now, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, I want you to know that John, remember that he expects that you have got familiarity with the synoptic gospels Matthew Mark and Luke and in Matthew Mark and Luke we see the triumphal entry recorded in all of the gospel accounts however John gives us a different perspective in Matthew Mark and Luke you walk with Jesus the scene is Jesus coming to Jerusalem John's view is from inside of Jerusalem looking outwards and, and here it says that the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem they go out to meet him now there was a crowd with Jesus as he is coming down the Mount of Olives and they are laying down their cloaks and they are singing the Hosannas but you'll remember that throughout all of Jerusalem the word had gone that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead four days in the grave and when they heard that Jesus was coming, they now rush out of Jerusalem and this crowd comes out and meets the crowd that is with Jesus. And now as he makes his way 
John tells us in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9, here then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coal. The synoptic gospels take us from Bethany as Jesus begins in. He stops at Beth Fage and tells two of the disciples to go in and to find the colt that is tied and to bring it. And you'll remember that the mother and the colt is brought and Jesus sits upon the colt. But John lets us know that while it is in fulfillment of the scriptures, the disciples didn't know that they were fulfilling scripture at the time. It says in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and they had done these things to him. And therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. And for this reason the people also met him because they had heard that he had done this sign. Jesus' public ministry really was in Galilee, outside of Jerusalem. This was the, the miracle there that swept through Jerusalem, and John lets us know that it had a tremendous impact upon the people. And while it had a tremendous impact on the people, the influence of Jesus made the religious leaders nervous. And the Pharisees uh, therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The popularity of Jesus was offensive to his enemies. The popularity of Jesus is still offensive to his enemies. In verse 20, it says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. And then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. You contrast the religious leaders that are offended with his influence and then right next to that you have these Greeks that come and they want to see Jesus. They had heard of Jesus somehow. Perhaps his reputation as a teacher or a worker of miracles or perhaps they had heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. We don't know who these Greeks are. We have no background uh, on them. We don't know if uh, they were Greeks that had become Jews, converted to Judaism. We don't know if they were God-fearers, those that were in the process of converting but had not yet become circumcised, or they could just simply have been Greek travelers that that were coming through Jerusalem. You remember the court of the Gentiles was a place where all people were welcome to come and to pray. It is interesting that they seek an audience with Jesus and they approach Philip. Philip is the only disciple that has a Greek name. 
And so, possibly, they, they go to Philip seeking an audience with Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. For Jews request a sign in Greek, seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. As we close our study here, I want to draw our attention for a moment back to verse 7. Back to where Mary has worshipped the Lord. We find Mary at the feet of Jesus again in this extravagant expression of her love. Love is always seeking to express itself. It is frustrating when your love is not able to be expressed and, and love always wants to express itself extravagantly. Here I got you this, but what I wanted to give you was this. There is the desire to be able to, to express the heartfelt emotions that surge with us that come through love. And, and Mary here's desire is to love the Lord, to worship him, to give him the very best that she has. And, and she goes and she gives him her entire dowry. That spikenard would have been her dowry. Her dowry is, is her future. And she pours out her future lavishly. This beautiful act of devotion. She wipes his feet with her hair. And we see that what does she receive? She receives not praise for it. She receives criticism for it. It is interesting to me that Mary sets a great example for you and for me. You see, when Mary worships the Lord with this extravagant gift, she is doing it in turbulent times. There is tremendous persecution against Jesus. The government is plotting his death. And we see that there were those that were now very fearful. The disciples were fearful. You'll remember when Jesus says, let's go to Jerusalem, that, that they had said the last time we were there, they tried to stone you, Jesus. And you remember how... <laughs> Thomas says, let's go up with Jesus and we'll die together there with him. There, there was tremendous uh, hostility between now the church and the government. I want you to know that we are in a turbulent time with the government right now. 
the church has been encroached upon by the government in its overreach here in the COVID crisis pandemic that we are in now. There are three institutions that are God-ordained in the affairs of man, government, the family, and the church. And each one of them has a sphere of influence. And when the government encroaches into the sphere of influence of the church, it is outside of its God-given authority. In our nation, we have been blessed uh, to have religious freedom. But we have seen those religious freedoms begin to erode and to come underneath the attack. First, there was the, the centrality of the Word of God in our culture, then our government. In God we trust is on our money. It was written on every monument. <laughs> the founding fathers had fled from a government that had encroached upon the church and in fact had kicked the church out and had taken over the church, the Church of England. Then we see that the pilgrims had departed for what? To be able to worship without government interference in any way, shape, or, or form. And it went from freedom of worship to then a phrase started to enter into our culture, the separation of church and state. This was never part of the founding fathers. It was never an intention. It meant that the government was to never have the ability to enter into and govern the affairs uh, of the church. And so suddenly now it started to be used that the, that the word God and art and Christian heritage was not allowed to be in the public at all. And it was used to push the church out of the public squares. The challenges of the manger scenes on public lands, the pledges of allegiance and taking God's name out, removing the Ten Commandments and stopping prayer in the schools. All of these were the government pushing the church out of our culture and out of our public squares. Separation of church and state was changed to the separation from church and state. Here we see that what has happened now is, is that the government during the period of the COVID pandemic has declared that the church is not essential. When the health concerns uh, were established, there were two groups, essential and non-essential. If you were essential, you were allowed to use your own best judgment to keep the influence and area safe as you possibly could with guidelines that would be given to help while you were allowed to continue to operate. If you were non-essential, you were told to shutter in place and to close your business. And the church was put into the category of non-essential. Non-essential. Petitions were made. Possibly this was just an oversight, this non-essential. Letter was written. Hundreds of pastors signed it. No movement whatsoever. 
court challenges, certainly we are essential. If people are dying, then they need the church more than they have ever needed the church. When people are sick and when people are afraid, when people are suffering, the church has always been there to come and to minister. That is the time that the, that the people turn to the church. If ever there was a time that the church is essential, it is in the middle of a pandemic. And yet the government told us to shutter in place. And when they did finally say that we were allowed to open, they put a restriction on us greater than any other restriction of any other business that there is. And so we have witnessed now the shot across the bow on an attack upon our religious freedom. Non-essential. Our government's view of the church is that we are non-essential. I would argue that the government has it very badly wrong. I would say that not only are we essential in the middle of a pandemic, I would argue that we are the most essential. For if... For if the lives of people are at stake, then the souls of people are at stake. And if I had to argue whether the life was more important or the soul was more important, certainly the scripture tells us that the soul is more important than the life. Jesus asked the question, what does it profit a man if he gains the world and loses his soul? If ever there is a time that the church is essential and most essential. It is when people are suffering and when people are dying. And it is easy for us to get caught up in the politics of the persecution that is going on right now and the shot across the bow. But I want you to know that fighting for religious freedom is nothing new. This battle is just at its beginning state right now. It will be months and years. These battles will go to the Supreme Court to, to carve out the rights between the church and the state. This is not going to end anytime soon. It will continue long after COVID is gone. But it is an important battle and is one that the church will not back down from and it is one that we will never quit. Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord? There is no question. Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. But in the midst of the battle, I want us to keep our focus. Mary, in the midst of the religious leaders seeking to kill Jesus, of the persecution of Jesus, of the fear that was going on, of the divided voices and the opinions, Mary doesn't forget to stop and worship the Lord. She doesn't get caught up into all that is going on. What does she do? She falls down at the feet of Jesus and she continues to love him extravagantly and to worship him completely. 
And that is what we must continue to do. We must continue to love Jesus. We must continue to worship Jesus. We must continue to be about our Father's business. We must continue to reach out and to extend grace to the lost and the invitation to minister to those that are in suffering and to continue to, to do what we do, which is to be a light to the world that is around us, to have the fragrance of Christ upon us, and to continue to worship the Lord. We are living in turbulent times. People are frustrated. People are tense. And people are frightened. There is uncertainty about the future in, in just about every arena. And never has it been more important for us to continue to love God and to love one another and to not get caught up to where we stop reading the word of God, praying, and worshiping the Lord. I want to encourage you and encourage myself to continually be found, not criticizing like those that were around Mary, but worshiping the Lord. May we worship him in spirit and truth. And may God do an amazing work in our hearts, in us, and through us. And may we continue to battle the rights of the church as the Lord gives us vehicle and place to do our part for our ability to declare that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We ask, God, that you would continue to lead us and guide us. God, help us, Lord. Help us to do our part. Help us also, Lord, to be found at the feet of Jesus, worshiping, sacrificially, giving him our very best. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.